Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, we'll be looking uh, in Acts chapter 2 this evening and a few other passages of Scripture. Uh, beginning new series tonight, I call Four Pillars of Our Faith, and this uh, will begin with participation. Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, Pentecost uh, was called the beginning uh, not something that I made up, but in Acts chapter 11 and verse 15. In Acts chapter 11, you might remember that Simon Peter was called into question because he had gone into the home of a Gentile, Cornelius mainly, and eaten with them, entered into their house, and this was forbidden by Jewish law. And uh, not only that, but uh, the Jews, or these Gentiles had been saved, baptized, and uh, so Simon Peter had to rehearse that matter before the church of Jerusalem. And Acts chapter 11 is a result of that. As he's explaining things, he says this in verse 15. As I began to speak, the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord, how that he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost. For as much then as God gave them the like gift as he did unto us who believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, what was I that I could withstand God? Now notice particularly verse 15 he said, when as I began to speak the Holy Ghost fell on them as on us at the beginning. Pentecost was the beginning of something. It's very, very clearly stated. Simon Peter understood that. His audience understood that. What was Pentecost, the day of Pentecost, the beginning of? And there are a lot of good people uh, out there in the religious world, many in the Baptist world, uh, who believe that the day of Pentecost was the beginning of the church. I don't share that belief. I believe Jesus started the church during his earthly ministry when he called out men and they began to company with him. And he was teaching them, and these were baptized men, and, and they began to go out and do the work of the ministry. I believe that all of the components of the New Testament church were there. Uh, they had Jesus. Number one, you can't have a church without Jesus. Uh, we can have a religious gathering. Uh, we can have an activity. We can have all kinds of events. Uh, but if Jesus is not there, you don't have a church. But Jesus was there. You say, well, where was the church when Jesus was here? Wherever he was. <laughs> Wherever he was. How many churches could there be as long as Jesus was here? One. That's why he told them it's expedient for you, that it's better for you that I go away. Because uh, if I go away, he says, then the Comforter, the Holy Spirit will come and he will abide with you forever. And, of course, he's not bound by places or times and and so Jesus was here. He had disciples who were there. They were baptized. Uh, uh, they were teaching and uh, they were making disciples. All of the ingredients of a New Testament church then were there. And uh, you say, well, they didn't have power. Well, not like they were going to have. But you can't say they didn't have power at all. People were being saved. Amen. People were being healed. Amen. I mean, there was incredible things that were happening. Yet Jesus did tell them after he went, uh, ascended back to the Father, you tarry here in Jerusalem until something happens. Until you be endued, he said, with power from on high. 
And he quoted the words of John the Baptist who had promised them that, that uh, uh, the one that was coming after him, the one whose shoes he wasn't worthy to tie, as we'd say in Arkansas, uh, he, he said, shall baptize you with fire and with the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, Jesus saw a new ministry of the Holy Spirit coming on the day of Pentecost. Uh, he promised it. The prophets had promised it. Something was coming. There was a new empowering, a personal empowering. Uh, a power of the Holy Spirit that would not be upon just a few as he came upon the kings who were anointed and others who were anointed like Elijah and Elisha was. But the Spirit would come upon all flesh. Not just uh, on men, but also on women. Not just on a few, but on all of those who believed in Jesus Christ. They would all receive uh, the Holy Spirit. And certainly we saw that play out on the day of Pentecost. There was 120 of them gathered together in that upper room. And there was 120 human candlesticks that day. Not 112. Uh, not 103. Uh, but uh, they all. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. We'll talk more about that. Uh, they all had that cloven tongue of fire upon their heads. And they all heard the sound of the rushing mighty wind. What a powerful uh, audio visual sign that God gave them there. With the wind and fire, you know what happens when wind and fire team up. You get a fire that can't be put out. What a great visual aid that was. They went out then speaking in languages. There were people in Jerusalem from all over. And they all heard the gospel proclaimed in their own, not just their own language, but in their own dialect. Uh, I don't know if there was any southern Jews there or not. I don't know. If there was such a thing as a southern Jew, then uh, they heard it not just in their own language, but in their own dialect. So we have then on the day of Pentecost uh, uh, the beginning of this new ministry of the Holy Spirit as he worked in his people and as he worked in his churches prophesied by the Old Testament prophets, promised by our Lord Jesus Christ, promised by John the Baptist, now being fulfilled and it's showing it out the truth of it not just for the Jews but also now in the Gentiles as well. And the book of Acts records that all through, but Pentecost then was the beginning of that. Well, we say today, well begun is half done. I, I guess maybe you won't say that much anymore. <laughs> well begun is half done. Uh, still, we know it isn't how something starts altogether, but also how it finishes up. That's important too. Uh, we know that if something isn't begun correctly, it's difficult for it ever uh, to wind up where it's supposed to be. Um, we also know that many races lost at the starting line, but a lot of them are lost at the finish line too. I, I could go on. Well, you know, both of those things are important, how something starts, how it finishes. But uh, here over the next few weeks, we'll be going back to what the Bible itself calls the beginning there on the day of Pentecost, that early time in the church. And, and I think there at this point in time, uh, with that great new ministry of the Holy Spirit and the empowering and the ministry and the work of the church, there are indeed four great principles. I call them pillars. Uh, you know, pillars like these at the back of our church. They're, that has a very noble sounding name. 
I could have called it four legs just as easily, but it just didn't sound quite as noble. Uh, a chair with four legs is very stable and trustworthy. A table with four legs is very stable. I'll admit that there are stools that just have three legs, and they do okay, but we know uh, something with four strong legs has good, solid support. A car with four tires is it's a good solid wagon with four wheels. It, I could, there's just something about it. And there's four great principles that's demonstrated here in Acts chapter 2. We're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Uh, what was it that was going on back at the beginning? Uh, there was unity. We're going to call that participation. There was preaching and teaching of the word of God. There was a whole lot of that. We'll call that proclamation. There was a move toward discipleship. They didn't just win people to the Lord and forget about them. They took deliberate steps to, to keep the people who were joining them, to teach them, to train them, to get them involved and connected. We'll call that preservation. And, of course, there was the reaching of people with the gospel as time after time in the early years there in the book of Acts, the early chapters, rather, the book of Acts, uh, there's this story after story after story of the power of the gospel to reach across all the barriers and how sometimes it was just one person who was saved, one household like Cornelius and his household, one person like Saul of Tarsus. Aren't we glad Saul got saved? Huh? Sometimes thousands, 3,000 a day of Pentecost, 5,000 at the testimony of the crippled man who was healed at the gate of the temple. They were reaching people with the gospel, and we'll call that procreation. They were reproducing themselves spiritually. And tonight, obviously, we're going to begin with the one that's mentioned in our text, participation. They were all with one accord and in one place. They were together. And they were working together. There were other things that were happening, but we're going to be looking at those two tonight. They were together and they were working together. And there's a couple of crucial ingredients in this. And the first is, of course, unity itself. In Acts chapter 2, they were with one accord. But that's not the only time that that uh, passage is mentioned. Acts chapter 1, or that word is mentioned. Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. They all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. Uh, Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, we've already seen that with one accord in one place. Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, they continuing daily with one accord in the temple. And breaking bread from house to house that eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Acts chapter 4 and verse 24, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord. They were one accord in prayer. In Acts chapter 5 and verse 12, by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Five times in five chapters, the people are said to be in one accord. It's interesting that after Acts chapter 5, that particular word is only found twice more in the New Testament. Once when it talked about the enemies of the gospel who were uniting, they moved with one accord to try to wipe the apostles out. 
and once of a church that was told to be in one accord. They needed it. But five times in the first five chapters of the book of Acts, uh, this church is said to be in one accord. This is actually one word in Greek, a homothemadon, a compound word from homo, which means the same, and themos, which means mind or spirit. One mind, one accord, one heart. It referred to their unity, both their unity of presence and their unity of purpose. They were together, you see, and they were working together. They were getting along together. They were of one heart. And they were together and they were together. You and I know you can be together and not be together. <laughs> Amen? Huh? It can't happen. I mean, you can gather together in one place and have a bunch of people that aren't talking to each other. They were together and they were together. They were together in one place and working together. Now... A lot of us tonight would identify when I say this, and, and you could think of it in a lot of different ways. But you, like me, grew up in a different America in many, many ways. Uh, how many of you know what the blue laws were? Raise your hand right quick. Blue laws. Blue laws in America were in effect when I grew up, in the state of Arkansas at least. Uh, what that meant was that all the businesses, except for the grocery stores and the drug stores, closed down on Sunday. Blue laws. Blue laws. Uh, they were repealed uh, early on in, in my lifetime. I, I don't remember exactly when, but uh, they were repealed, overturned. Uh, I can remember going to Walmart uh, on Sunday afternoon. If you went there on Sunday morning, there would be a sign up on the door at Walmart in Spring Hill or in Magnolia. Spring Hill, Magnolia, saying the same thing. Uh, Walmart is closed on Sunday mornings until 1 o'clock to allow our employees to go to church. Uh, this was in places all over the state. That same sign was found. Uh, we never went out to eat when I was growing up in Taylor, Arkansas. We didn't have any restaurants. <laughs> our town... Our town was very, very small. Uh, we'd had to drive a long way, it seemed like a long way, all the way to Spring Hill, 10 miles down the road, all the way to Magnolia, 20 miles up the other way, uh, to go out to eat somewhere. But it just wasn't that big of a deal back then. Uh, people cooked on Sunday. A lot of times they invited folks over. We had a lot of preachers meet in our house. I grew up in a different America in many ways, but that was one of the ways. We were living in a time it was when America was under the influence of what was known as Christendom. That is, that America was a Christian nation, but it considered itself to uh, be kind of adhering to Christian principles and operating in acknowledgement of Christian principles. Those days are gone, brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're probably not ever going to come back. Today, you're grow you are raising your families in a different America and a different world. Right, wrong, or indifferent, folks, that's the way it is. I want to be clear to you tonight. I'm not saying that we need to go out and organize a petition drive to reenact the blue laws, okay? They're gone. I think that would be a waste of our time to try to do something like that. 
We can lament that they're gone. We can argue about how we ought to do this or do that. We've moved on. We've moved on. If we're going to get out in the streets and be talking to people door to door, God help us to be sharing the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what this world needs. And yes, we might pray to have such a revival that uh, all of a sudden all the stores started closing down because they didn't have any business left on Sunday. Now, if we want to pray for something, just just pray for such a change in our culture. And that would be something to pray for. You see, as, as Christians today, when it comes to gathering together in one place and being together in one place and then working together, we're going to have to understand that our nation, our world has changed, that things are, are no longer as they once were, and that therefore getting all of our people together in one place at one time to work together is a challenge for us. This Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, it's a challenge. Uh, I thought for many years, you know, there was a time when you could just make an announcement and be done. But now you have to make an announcement for about four weeks, put it on Facebook, send it out on whatever, and still we can't get the word out to everybody. It's, it's difficult for us to get together in one place at one time. But don't think that first century believers had it easy. Remember that in Jerusalem, their holy day was the Sabbath. That's Saturday. You know what Sunday was in Jerusalem? It was the first day of the week, the work week. It still is. If you go to Israel now, I very well remember being in Tiberias up on the Sea of Galilee. And, and uh, we moved in there on a Saturday. We could not unload our bus. There was nobody because everybody was off. There was nobody to unpack our bags and bring them in. We just had to sit around out and walk around because all the shops were closed. There was nowhere to go. When sundown came, I found out where Saturday night revelry had its origin. I tell you, because when sundown came, everything came alive. All the shops opened. All the malls opened. All of the restaurants opened. Suddenly, everything was open for business. You see, when these people talked about worshiping on the first day of the week, it was tough for them. That was a work day. I doubt very seriously. The Bible, as far as I know, doesn't specifically say what time they gathered together. But I doubt very seriously that they were meeting at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. They probably met on Sunday night because that's when everybody got off work. But you know what the Bible also tells us about their gathering in the first century is that they didn't just get together on Sunday and they didn't even just get together on Sunday and Wednesday. But they met together daily. They met together from house to house. They broke bread together. They fellowshiped together. They continued on a daily basis more often than not as they gathered together and studied the word of God and listened to the teachings of the apostles, they had so much to learn, so much had changed, so many questions that had to be answered. They were hungry to know more about the word of God. 
It's God's people, our unity and location, our being able to gather together in one place is under attack today. But don't think we're the first generation that's had to make hard choices. God's people have always had to make hard choices. But if we're going to be able to move forward and move forward effectively, then we're going to have to make those choices. It takes solid effort on our part. I don't know whether you can tell it or not, but I never take your being here for granted. I know you being here tonight took a lot of effort on your part. There were other places you could be. I know for you to be here and have your family here this morning took effort on your part. There were other places that you could have been. You could have stayed at home and slept in if you can sleep in. That's not an option for me, but uh, some of you might still be able to sleep in. You could have stayed at home and, and, and maybe got up at the crack of nine. You could have. But you didn't. You were here. I never take that lightly. I pray before every service, God, your people are coming here to honor your word and to listen to your message proclaimed. And I want to give it all I've got. I want to be prepared, and I am. I've studied, and I've prayed over our time together. I'm not boasting. I'm telling you the truth. I don't take our time for granted. It is precious time. It is preaching time. It takes effort for us to get here. But we need to make the effort. As they came together then, they were also said to not only be in one place, but they were also said to be in one accord uh, in, in prayer. Romans chapter 15, verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, so one accord and it's to place, sometimes in the temple, sometimes Solomon's portico, sometimes in an upper room. One accord in prayer, as we found in Acts chapter 5, as they gathered together in one accord because they were under threat. And therefore they came together to bombard the throne room of heaven with their prayers. And God responded in a mighty way. But here's really the last time that one accord is found in the New Testament concerning a church, Romans chapter 15. And isn't it interesting that he talks about them being one accord in their praises. That with one mind and one mouth you would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sad thing these days that so many churches are struggling and dividing over our praise and our worship of God. Now, you might like some tunes better than you do others. Uh, some of you that grew up listening to Lawrence Welk every Saturday night like what they called champagne music. You remember that? I could make that sound if it would help you. <laughs> Lawrence Welk. I never liked Lawrence Welk. I didn't. I didn't even like Joanne Castle. I, I just, I mean, not, that, not personally, I, just, I didn't care much for that style of music. Some folks, I know that, that really hurts you. 
Uh, but I'm, I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. Some folks are big Gaither fans. I happen to be one of them. I listen to the Gaithers all the way from here to about Knoxville. And I just had all of it I could take and took it off. I had to change the channel and find something else. And... Uh, it was hard to find a good station that would stay in while you were going over the mountains and through the valleys out there. But I, I persevered and tried to find something. I like the Gaithers just fine. I like quartet music. I, I do. I like it. Uh, I like some of the modern praise and worship music. I like a lot of it. Uh, there's some of it maybe I don't care for. But what I look at here in Romans chapter 15 tells us that we can with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that tells me that regardless of what tune we might set words to, if those words glorify God, then I can with one mind and one mouth glorify God with those things. As long as it's glorifying God, it's speaking the truth, then we should be able to put our hearts together with that. We might not like the tune and we might not care for the beat, but I like the message just fine. Our God is indeed an awesome God. And it doesn't matter whether we're singing that to how great thou art. Or our God is an awesome God. Or any one of a thousand other variations thereof. Unity is a challenging thing. That's why in Ephesians chapter 5 the Bible tells us. That we are to earnestly keep, or Ephesians 4 and verse 3, endeavoring, earnestly desiring, working hard to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word in Ephesians 4 is a very powerful word. It means to strive, uh, to hurry, to make haste. It's urgent business. It is, in fact, even what we would today call an emergency effort. It is the task uh, that is so urgent that no effort is spared. Cost is unimportant. All energy is expended. It is the building of a levee when the river is rising inches every hour. It is the urgency of digging through the rubble of an earthquake to reach those who are trapped and those who are undoubtedly dying. It is an emergency task. And the Bible tells us that we are to work very fervently, endeavor with great strength and urgency to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When things threaten our unity, when they threaten the bond of peace, then we are to consider that an urgent matter of prayer and move very quickly to make sure that it doesn't escalate. Sometimes the challenges to our unity are caused by offenses. That's why Jesus spent so much time talking about it in Matthew chapter 18. You remember how he told us to deal with it when your brother trespasses against you. You go and, and tell him between you and him alone. And if he forgives, then you've gained your brother. Uh, or if he repents, you've gained your brother. If that doesn't work, then you carry some more. And you go and you try to reconcile this thing among yourself. And if all else fails, he said, do what? Tell it to the church. It's such a serious matter that there might be times when the whole church has to make a decision in order to protect the unity and the peace. It was within that same context, of course, that Simon Peter asked his famous question, Lord, how many times do we 
have to forgive unto 70 times 7. And 7 times, 70 times 7, Jesus said. And he told a story. Uh, a story about a servant who had embezzled 10,000 talentia from his employer. In modern day dollars, let's call that $100 million. It's about what it would be. It embezzled about $100 million from the king. And he said this. He said, be patient with me and I'll repay all of it. Now that was a lie. If he worked every minute of every day for the rest of his life, he would never be able to pay that debt back. And that's why I deliberately chose the words that I used. 10,000 talentia was a fortune that could never, ever be repaid. And that same man then, after being forgiven by the king, who pled with the king saying, oh king, forgive me. He was forgiven. He went out and found another one of his friends that owed him a hundred denarii. That's about $3,000. Same plea. Be patient with me, my friend, and I will pay you back. And that was a payable debt. $3,000. It's going to take a year or two maybe if you make regular payments. $100 a month. You'll You'll pay that back in 30 months. I mean, that's, that's a very doable thing. 10,000 talentia, he could never pay it back. The interest would accrue, accrue faster than he could ever pay it. But 100 denarii? And instead of being patient then with this man who owed him 100 denarii, the Bible says that Jesus in his story, Matthew 18, said that this man had him thrown in prison. We, we need to think about that story a little more often. Have you been hurt by a brother or sister in Christ? Have you had somebody talk bad about you, talk mean to you, things happen, hurt your feelings? Just take a long look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And remember that he paid for you and for me a debt we could never pay. And he calls on us then to forgive one another as he forgives us. Uh, that unity business is a big deal. <laughs> Amen. It's a big deal. And the second part then of this being together and working together. Uh, I mean, we, we can be together and we can decide to be working together. We can be united in our presence and, and united in purpose. But we need something else. Something I like to call unction. Acts chapter 2 and verse 4 they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And because my mind is the way it is, the minute that I say unction, I think about function, and I start wanting to sing that old little uh, Saturday morning song, Conjunction, Junction, what's your function? 
And uh, that has nothing whatsoever to do with unction other than the function part. Uh, unction is a word you don't hear a lot more anymore, but it's a really, really good word. It describes, you see, what happens when we are moved and empowered and directed by the Holy Spirit of God. They were together. They were in one place. They were united in presence. And they were united as to their purpose. But it wouldn't have done them any good unless they were united in power. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. We are not independent in the Lord's work. We are dependent by nature. We are dependent on the work that only the Holy Spirit can do. We may not can define unction very well. If we tried, what does exactly does it mean? How do you describe it? We might have trouble. But we know full well when it is not happening. When there's no unction. We know what to do. We may even know how to do it. But we find no power. To enable us to make it go. It's just. We're out of gas. Unction. Ephesians 5 and 18 then is a very important passage for us. Because it tells us, be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now when the, the apostle tells us to be filled with the Spirit, uh, he follows that up with three things. Uh, three compound words, that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but uh, there are three participles actually, but uh, speaking to yourselves, that's uh, one of them, uh, uh, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. We combine a couple of those into what we call the inward evidence. There was a joy in the soul and a song in the heart. Uh, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. There was joy in the heart that evidenced in their, in their praises. You see, the first evidence then that the, we have of a spirit-filled life, how do you know if you're filled with the spirit? It's internal. There is joy unspeakable and full of glory. If you are experiencing the joy of the Lord, if you can gather together on Sunday morning and experience the joy of the Lord, if you come back on Sunday night and you can sense and experience the joy of the Lord, that's one of the ways we know that the Spirit of God is working in our life. There's the internal evidence. Then there's the upward evidence of giving thanks. Giving thanks. The second evidence of a Spirit-filled life. Overwhelmed. When we think of what God is doing in our life and in our churches, overwhelmed with gratitude for the opportunity of serving Him. Overwhelmed with thanksgiving. The more we are filled with the Spirit, the closer we'll walk with the Lord. And the closer we walk with the Lord, the more we find to be thankful for. It's the upward evidence, inward evidence. Joy in the soul and a song in the heart. Upward evidence. Giving thanks. Then the outward evidence. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. 
And see, the more we're filled with the Spirit of God and the more then that joy floods our soul over the blessings of God, the more that we find to be thankful for and to praise God for, the less impressed we are with ourselves. The less impressed we are with ourselves. And therefore, we can submit to one another in the fear of God, our desire then is not to lord over one another, but to serve one another and to minister to one another and to help one another. One preacher compared Christians today to being a lot like the old hand-operated pumps. If you've ever had to grab a hold of one of those and fill up a 50-gallon tank, then you know how old that gets in a hurry. Uh, as long as you keep pumping, of course, the water or whatever it is that you're pumping keeps flowing. But the minute you stop... What happens? The water stops. Jesus promised us a river of life springing up within our soul. We'd call that an artesian well. Springing up. Overflowing. Not having to be pumped up. But overflowing. And that's the life that God has promised us. It's what we long for. It's what we look for. Participation is when people are united in place and in purpose and in power. As the Spirit of God then begins to work in us, we find fewer and fewer occasions or having to pump people up all the time to keep them going. One pastor I'll never forget uh, reminded uh, uh, said he felt like uh, uh, the guy with the, the plates on a stick. You ever seen that, that uh, done where the guy gets a plate to spinning and then he gets another plate to spinning and then he gets another one. And of course, then about that time he has to go back and spin this one again and spin this one again. Spin Sooner or later, he, he, no matter how good he is, he, he runs out of hands. He, he just can't keep them all spinning. And that's not how church is supposed to operate. We are to operate in the power of the Spirit of God under the unction as He moves among us. And He can and will do it. He longs to do it. And so tonight I hope that you've all been encouraged, blessed, perhaps challenged by thinking about our participation one of the key ingredients of our faith, one of the pillars of a strong faith is participation. It's a time then for us all to ask ourselves, well, how are we doing in this area? Uh, Jesus longs to fill us. I used to say that you can't fill a full vessel. But that's not true. If I had before you tonight an empty glass and I poured water into it, you'd say, well, that glass was empty and now it's full of water. That's still not the truth. The glass was full already. It was full of air. And the water, because it's denser and heavier, pushes the air out. Now it's filled with water. Um... 
I've never seen a glass, though, when I begin to run the tap water down into it, or I've never seen a glass refuse to be filled with iced tea. No, I'm not going to take it. I like my air. I'm going to hold on to it. <laughs> they don't say that. But our lives as Christians, as God's people, can indeed be so full of the world and we hang on to it so tenaciously that while the Spirit of God longs to fill us, we're not going to turn loose at the things that have us already full. Do you understand? We can so fill our lives with the world that we really don't have room for the mighty Spirit of God. And it affects our participation. And it makes it almost impossible for our church to fulfill our function. Let's stand together, please.